0: Welcome to a Canadian Investing in the U.S., a podcast and YouTube channel focused on Canadians buying real estate with host Glenn Sutherland.
1: Welcome to another episode of a Canadian Investing in the U.S. This is your host Glenn Sutherland. Uh, This week I have uh, Omar Khan. Uh, Omar, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself? (laughs)
0: Hey Glad, so I with. thank you first of all for having me on your show. It's a great honor. No problem. I've been in the US, Dallas specifically, for about three years now. I moved down from Calgary. Before that, I was in Toronto. I went to school there. I started working for RBC and Mackenzie there. Then I moved to the old patch, did some MA, you know, investment banking types of stuff there, and then I moved down here. So what we I'm a CFA charter holder, I just did the whole thing, you know. I studied hard, I did all my degrees, like all my other Canadian peers. So before moving here in the old patch and in Toronto, I did about $3.7 billion of M&A and capital financing transactions. And now what I do is I syndicate large multi-million dollar deals, multi, typically in mobile home parks across the United States. And the bulk of my investors are Canadians because I mean, I have gone through the pain yes. of setting up everything, having all my investments move over here. And this is why when I can talk to a lot of Canadians, I really kind of know what's going on, what's their tax problem like, what their lending problems are like. And then we can structure products that are just right for them as opposed to, hey, just invest in my super awesome deal, <laughs> and I guess you can figure out everything else yourself.
1: What are some of the uh, myths that Canadian investors are falling into?
0: Well, uh, number one is the myth that, I mean, you know it better than I, the 1031 exchange. Yes. Right? It's I, I don't know. I've gone through at least a good four dozen conversations in the past two months where Especially, you know, with uh, Toronto and Vancouver markets being really hot for real estate and they're kind of going through a little bit of a dip these days. So a lot of folks are trying to get out and some of the folks that have gotten out, they've got a lot of money or rather before they sell, they say, well, why don't I just 1031 exchange it into a bigger property in the U.S.? And the simple thing is, guys, you can't. We're Canadians. We can't. So, number one, that's out of the picture. And then what you really can't do is, even if you could 1031, you can't just pick up one asset from one country, take it to another country, and then imagine nothing's going to happen in between.
1: So, for you know? Canadians, do we have the uh, ability to 1031 from an American to an American property?
0: Uh, yes, you can in America, but the CRA doesn't consider it a 1031. The CRA considers it a disposition, so you'll still end up paying taxes on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one way I was thinking about it, if you could get around it, if you moved your assets from being in like a partnership or an LLC and mm-hmm. moved them into like a C-Corp, because then you're like a true American corporation, that might be one way, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm just first of all, me.
0: I know. I, hey, that's a good, that's a good thought I thought process to think about. Uh, you'd have a hard time convincing the CRA is what I'm trying to tell you. Look, yep. from the perspective of being in America, yep. Yeah. From the American perspective, it's American to American, you can do it, no problem, because the IRS doesn't really care that much. But since you are a Canadian resident, as an example, and you spend more than half the year in Canada, so you are then considered to be paying, from the CRA's eyes, you're considered to be a Canadian resident who's going to pay taxes in Canada. So regardless of what some foreign um, taxation authority treats you like, you, they still consider it a deemed disposition. Okay. So there's a lot of fancy tax structuring that can go on. I'm not a tax CPA, but I can tell you that as an individual, you're going to have a really hard time trying to explain this to the CRA because, first of all, you know, you know this better than I do. They don't like to discuss anything; they just like to tell you stuff.
1: Because I just went through my first uh, American tax return and and Canadian tax return, and it it seemed that the. CRA just wanted the one piece of paper that they get from uh, my American accountant. And they, yeah. they, they sort of, you just fill out a couple of yeah. things and then they just want that thing. So I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know, in, honest, in honesty, I didn't really look at it, but I, I guess the, the 1031 would show up on that form that CRA would see?
0: Yeah, look, uh, yes, I think it would show up on that form. And the other deal also is that contrary to, say, even 10, 15, 20 years ago, what's happening now increasingly is because there's so much, look, America and Canada share so many things in common, right? We have so many people going back and forth all the time that the CRA and the IRS, especially in the last five, 10 years, have really started sharing a lot of information. You'd actually be very shocked. And say even 20, 25, 30 years ago, Canadians could play this little game of, well, they'd, you know, do a 1031 there, but not really kind of, you know, slip it under the radar over here in Canada. Yeah, that doesn't work anymore because the CRA and IRS share pretty much all the information. And all you really have to unfortunately get done to you is get audited once and then it's game over. I mean, then they're gonna make your life a living hell.
1: What would you say that uh, Canadians would wanna know before investing in the United States?
0: Well, first of all, I would suggest what Canadians should know or rather right off the top what Canadians should do is that they should consult with a good cross-border CPA. And the reason why I say that is because a lot of times it doesn't necessarily matter what you're investing, what you're doing, but depending on how you're doing stuff, the amount of taxes you might end up paying might not make it very attractive to invest in the U.S. For the type of strategy that you're trying to do, as an example, right? But conversely, if you do, if you set up yourself with a good cross-border CPA, and I think we share the same cross-border CPA,
1: right? Elliot, uh, did you go to Elliot? No, I'm actually using Ally over in Dearborn, Michigan. Okay. <laughs> Well, anyways, what, happened, what happens there is when
0: you consult with a cross-border CPA, they can give you a good perspective of what your selective options are. So, yes. for instance, for my clients. My clients aren't people who want to invest just in houses because a lot of these are folks who want to invest in, say, large apartment building. And there's a whole number of economic reasons why they want to do that. You get better tax treatments. There's a high, you get better risk diversification, better return management, all of that kind of stuff, right? Because you're investing in bigger, more bluer chip sort of assets, as an example, so your investment is safer, it's managed by professionals, all of that. But the biggest thing Canadians have to realize is that you're gonna just show up to the US and it doesn't, doesn't start raining dollar bills on you. It's very hard, and there's a lot of properties, for instance, in the US, and there's lots of areas in the US for which we have no comparable example in Canada. So a lot of times, you know, when we talk, listen on podcasts, and somebody says, hey, I bought 10 houses in some XYZ city, right? And I'm 25. And I bought each of these houses for 30 grand or 35 grand. And I just repaired them. And all I had to do was put them back on the market. And somebody bought it for 55 grand. Well, there's a couple of problems there. Number one, I don't think we have an area in Canada that has houses for $30,000. Number one, or rather, I haven't come across an area. Have you?
1: If you're going to do that in Canada, you're going to be out into um, a small village that's Really far out there, like in northern New Brunswick, that used to be a mining town, and the mines are closed, and there's no other business there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so a lot of, and
0: that's a good point, actually, I didn't think of that. That's a really good
1: point. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not story. where you want to
0: invest. <laughs> exactly, right? And the other deal also is that now people some might, now you might hear say, oh, this house is in like this really big city that we've heard about. Pick a big city that you like, right? In the Midwest, South, whatever. Yeah. The problem is a lot of these places, they're war zones, literally. I mean, I'm literally telling you, we do not have an equivalent in Canada because even walking down the street in these neighborhoods, you will not feel safe in your car. So let alone if you buy houses there, yeah, they look great on paper, they look like, oh, I can make such high cash on cash, such higher ROIs, but there's a difference between something looking really good on an Excel sheet and then you actually collecting all the cash. Because there's a big difference. If somebody is paying you $400 a month or $500 a month, there's a good chance they're not gonna pay you three or four or five months out of the year. And best of luck trying to collect from somebody who doesn't have the cash and has a gun.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So we're talking about um, if you're going to go buy in some of these towns, you're going to need someone who has like a a market experience and that that city's experience. So sort of looking at building our teams, right?
0: Yeah. First of all, you should be building your team. And that starts with, again, with your cross-border CPA for you to know what options you do have to begin with. But the other deal also is, and uh, you'll observe this as well: is look, we in Canada feel that unless each of us doesn't have like at least a college degree or an advanced college degree with a master's and businesses, we are we cannot opine on a subject. As an example, because we just feel like we just have to be so trained in, in something before we can even go on a radio show or a podcast like yours or a TV show and opine on something. It's the exact opposite issue in the U.S. They are, they are just they, look, they are so entrepreneurial us that there's lots of guys out there for instance who have no business being in real estate they can't even add two numbers together but because they can talk slick they've lived in a city so when you're an out-of-state or an out-of-country investor you just feel wow this guy's really good he knows what he's talking about but again it's that big difference between paper returns on excel and actual returns so when you're building your team you really have to focus in and see well yeah what happens outside of this marketing cuz don't be as trusting as you would be in canada
1: yeah no i agree and uh like you'd need to vet who you're dealing with like uh you can go to bigger pockets and literally oh, yeah. read reviews on each person like you can read reviews on people and google them like like and you know find out more about them cuz just cuz they have oh, yeah, a podcast doesn't mean that they're you know, to get a podcast, you just have to go sign up for a couple of accounts and pay for some hosting, and you're you're up, right? I know that there's a lot of differences between syndicators, be just from uh, interest rate wise, like preferred rates. Uh, there's a difference mm-hmm. in if they're going to give you depreciation credits. There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of from one to the other. Uh, we almost strictly compare as like novices on based on what they have for, for the interest rate, and there's, we're not looking at a lot of the other underwriting that's going into the whole the, yeah. the deal, right?
0: Yeah, so I can tell you, you've raised adequate points, and all of these are things one should be considering, but also think of it this way, and again, I don't know about your syndication, so I, I don't know right. the details in particular is there, but the issue you'll also start seeing is that we have a lot of, Dallas seems to be like ground zero for this thing, okay? We have a lot of club investors, people who are from some guru or mentor, and nothing wrong with that because they give you a lot of value. They teach you a lot of stuff. But the issue is that there's a lot of people, for instance, who think that just because I took a weekend course or I took a four-week study course in something, it could be anything, I'm suddenly... And there's a big difference in, you know, passively reading something and actually doing it on a day-by-day basis. For instance, look, the only reason why a lot of my underwriting models are used by some of the leading syndicators, why I'm a financial partner with some of the leading syndicators, even though they have done more deals than I have. The reason for that is that for the first 10 to 12 years of my life, I was working in blue chip of Canadian firms. I was working in the RBC, CIBC, Synovus Energy, and Canada. I was doing all this stuff on a day-by-day basis. So I had already built out a track record day in and day out of 80, 100 hour weeks for about 10, day, 10, 10 years in a row, right? So I'm not saying that what I'm doing is something special. What I'm trying to say is, that me or any other person who has a track record of doing something is just infinitely going to be better than some guy who took two or three weeks course. And that's just the way it is because look, I can't do your job, even I might read something about it, but I really can't do your job, right? So some of the biggest things that as a Canadian investor we should be looking at is forget about just looking at the returns, guys. People are laser focused on the returns and I feel that's not entirely the best way of looking at things. What the average investor should be looking at is the risk. Well, for for the given level of risk that I had. And the risk is not just financial, you know, the asset doesn't work out. The risk is all of these things that you said. The sponsor doesn't have a good track record or the sponsor is a newbie, but you know, they have their guru saying, well, you know, I blessed this person. Well, the problem is the guru isn't, the guru doesn't have any skin in the game. All they really said is because this guy paid me $20,000 every six months for my course. That's the extent of what the guru is saying. The guru doesn't have their name on the loan documents. So the guru isn't investing their money into this. So, I mean, I can say whatever I like, but that doesn't mean that's reality, right? Yeah. So look look at the risks that way. And then also look, look at their professional background. So for instance, if somebody is really good in finance, as an example, they might not be the best person who can do property management. And conversely, if somebody is really good at property management, they might not be the best person to do your taxes and that's got nothing against the person but that's look, it's a very specific skill set so with regards to underwriting you know i know everybody's focused on returns all the time but there's a lot of factors that go behind that and to be honest with you like we said earlier any number can be shown on excel i mean if you give me the worst asset in the world i can show you 100% a year return for the next 5 years it's just that it's just not going to be reflective of reality so adequately looking at your returns then doing all of your due diligence up front checking, talking, having big, deep discussions with your syndicators, not just about, hey, what's the project like? What are they like? What's their background like? What's their technical competency like? When things go south, do they have multiple scenarios and exit plans mapped out? For instance, when they show you a sensitivity analysis, you know, where different returns and you're sensitized to a variable, what's going on? What actually goes into their underwriting? Because what everybody is assuming right now is that they look at the past three years as an example, which, by the way, were the exception to the rule they weren't the rule right so they look at the past three years they'll take an average of the past three four years and just average it out for the next three four five years but the problem with that is that if you're looking at the rear view mirror you don't know that something's coming and coming head front like that to you right because you all as an investor you can only look forward you can't look backwards
1: yeah
0: right and the other biggest deal with the interest in all of this is that i personally seen actually right on friday i was actually talking to one of these guys i met him the problem is so many people are eager to get into the game that literally what they've been told by a lot of their gurus and mentors is that you have to do everything possible to get the deal the problem with doing everything possible to get the deal is that you'll do everything possible to get the deal and that's always not the best way forward so people will end up getting really bad loans So their back is against the wall you know they'll take on assumable loans with like a one year you know one year maturity left there's lots of small little moving parts until you don't have a deep discussion on these things guys don't invest because no deal is better than a good bad deal literally wait three months wait four months develop a relationship with people try to understand how the process goes don't be in a hurry to just throw your cash to the first guy who seems nice always vetted by some sort of guru, because for all intents and purposes, lots of these gurus have no business meaning in this field. I mean, they haven't been around for more than three or four or five years.
1: Let's change uh, gears a little bit. What about we talk about the uh, difference in uh, landlord laws between, uh, say, Ontario, Quebec, BC, (laughs) and then we're going to (laughs) compare them to, I know you're in in Texas, right? So Texas is, I believe, the most landlord-friendly state in the entire United States. It's always on every single top five list that I've ever read.
0: Yeah. well we can talk about it but the conversation is going to be really short and the conversation goes something like this that if somebody doesn't pay you their your rent like so if you are the owner of the building and person x doesn't decide to pay you your rent you don't have to beg them to give you your your rent the rent that you are legally obliged to get you don't have to you know ask for so you don't have to give them cash for keys. You don't have to do anything like that. If the person doesn't pay you the rent that they have said they're they're going to pay you on time, you send them one or two late notices and then you basically go down to the sheriff's office and tell them what's happened. And by law, the sheriff's going to show up and evict the tenant. There's going to be no landlord and tenancy board. There's going to be no, hey, it's really, I don't know, July, it's really hot, or it's December, I mean, it's not really that cold in Dallas, but people in Texas think it's really cold, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's December, right? Or it's Christmas, thanks, or no, no, none of that matters. If, because every single day, somebody doesn't pay you your rent, you're losing money. So that's the way they look at it. If it's a contractually, if you're contractually bound to pay something that you're supposed to be paying, they're not it's like this whole bureaucratic game of you begging and cajoling and then you go to a landlord and tenancy board. They wait, they're making you wait for three months. Then if you're lucky, they might give you a date and then you have to leave everything in your life and show up to their date and have them rule against you because you're a, or you're a heartless landlord.
1: I remember my first time, it was for my property in Alabama and after I think five days, the person was late. They're like, okay, do you want us to evict them? And I'm yeah. to, I have all these properties in Ontario and I was like, what? We're going to start an eviction after five days? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, no, we can, we can get them evicted. We'll have them out before the end of the month. I'm like, oh, you know what? You guys are the professionals. Do, do what you normally do. <laughs> they're like, well, we'll send them a, 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 a letter, and then uh, they should pay us in the next day or two. Otherwise, we'll get them out.
0: Oh, yeah, look, that, look, think about it. I mean, you don't think that's fair? Because, look, if you invested your money, you also have mouths to feed, right? You also have demands on that thing.
1: Oh, yeah. And if you're going to, compared to Ontario, we do like first and last month's rent here, whereas yeah. they do security deposit. Yeah. Uh, the difference with security deposit is that it's not last month's rent. You don't have oh, to yeah, give not back to it back to them. You can use it to fix any repairs in the building. If they've been smoking in there, you can use it to paint the building. You yeah. Know, anything that's caused by the tenant, you can use it to pay that. And I think in... Texas, it's uh, you have two months or three months to give them the security deposit back, so you have time for your contractors to go in, find anything else that hasn't been mm-hmm. discovered, and return it. But that changes from state to state. I know, I think it was a month in Alabama, two months in uh, Indiana, but it's it's in that range though. But it's 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 you know it's returned to the, them as long as they've left it in good condition. But it can be used oh yeah look.
0: And the other, yeah, and the other deal also is it also changes from sub-market to sub-market. So as an example, if you're in, say, Las Colinas, which is an afterward submarket of uh, Dallas, if you're there versus, say, I don't know, if you're in uh, Irving, the other part of Irving, right? Okay. Rules will slightly change because the competition around you is going to demand is also going to set some of the rules. It's not just a legal issue, right? If your competition is charging 300 bucks for a security deposit and you have the comparable building, but you're charging 500 bucks for a security deposit. Well, guess what? Most people aren't going to show up to your place, right? Nobody wants to go through that sort of hassle. But the other law says, yeah, there's no this first and last month's rent because a lot of these things feed into each other, right? Look, if you don't pay the rent. Well, they're gonna evict you so they also have some sort of security and the other deal also that we've realized over here is that contrary to Canadians, and this took me a little while to figure out also americans actually like a lot of their leases to be month to month whereas over in canada we like to sign like year-long lease or six-month lease or you know for security purposes but they think about it the opposite way they think about it in the sense that look if i don't like this person i don't want them hanging around Yep. so it's a different perspective I mean it's in both cases don't get me wrong Americans are making a lot of money but it's just a different perspective we value stability more and we, they value capital appreciation more
1: yep and um, you you're saying like charging like three or four or five hundred dollars for last month's rent like you can I think charge up to two months rent as yeah. a security deposit which is right crazy like compared to you know Ontario where we can't do any of that um also to...
0: the other thing we sorry sorry interrupt you. i think the other thing we forgot also is that there's no rent uh, rent limits over here so if right, i want to jack up my rent into, by like yeah. two
1: hundred dollars hey man it's my property
0: i'll do whatever i like
1: yeah if the market dictates it if the tenants are willing to pay it you just have to give enough notice whatever is legal for that oh, state, yeah. and then uh, yeah if they don't like it they can uh move out but uh you just have to be reasonable just picking you know looking at comps and if the you're fine that you've bought a property even that's undervalued, you can bring it up to value. And if you're doing like mm-hmm. a government syndication, then you can uh, the whole it increases the value you're building if you want to do a refinance because it's all based on cap rate. Mm-hmm. A
0: lot of it. Anyway. Well see, yes, yes, and the other deal also is their perspective is look, if you overcharge for something, people are just gonna move out. So the consumer also has a lot of power. It's not just a landlord having power. In fact, I think the consumer has more power because the consumer has more choices. And once you own a building, you're kind of stuck with that building for a little while. The consumer can just up and leave and move to the building across the street.
1: Totally agree. If someone wanted to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do so? Well, they can email me at umar,
0: O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwealth.com. So that's B-O-A-R-D, walkwealth.com. You can also text me at 214-727-8643. And our and our website is boardwalkwealthoneword.com, and we specialize in dealing with international and Canadian folks. So, email us whenever you like.
1: Perfect. Thanks for coming on the show. That was great. Thank you, Glenn. It's an honor.